Blog Talk Radio. Constitutional Warriors to the Free-for-All Friday edition of the Dan Clements Show, a Christian political talk show. This is episode 910. I'm your host, Dan Clements, your Constitutional Warrior, fighting for your right just to be an American. It is October 20th in the year of the Lord, 2017. Remember, we're a hyphen-free, PC-free zone. God is still in control and he does love you. I'm broadcasting live from the Hemlock Studios here in the beautiful central Susquehanna Valley in the great Keystone State. And if you... Uh, Want to follow me on uh, my chat rooms? I have the chat room open up uh, over in um, on my YouTube channel and also over at Blog Talk Radio. I think I have to reopen the one on uh, my YouTube for some reason. It stopped working. I can't type in it. Uh, so uh, a few technical difficulties here this morning, and hopefully they don't carry on uh, too far into the day. Um, we have a special guest, uh, Professor F.H. Uh, Buckley. George Mason University. Uh, he teaches at the law school there. We'll be bringing him up at about 20 after. I want to get through the uh, beginning of the show here. And we're going to be talking about an article I brought up a while ago, uh, a little over a week ago. Um, matter of fact, he penned this on the uh, the 13th, so that would have been uh, last Friday. and we, we would have been talking about that Friday and Monday. Uh, but anyway, it's uh, behind Trump's latest moves to return to constitutional government. We're going to talk to uh, Professor Buckley about this, and he also has, uh, hopefully he doesn't mind me saying this, he has a new book coming out here uh, fairly soon uh, on Amazon, and so we'll talk about both of those articles there, and, and the reason why, uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up today is, uh, well, one, uh, his assistant got in contact with me, but the reason why I went to this story was uh, it, I was intrigued, uh, because you hear very little praise for Donald Trump. Now, I'm not saying he's, you know, uh, Donald Trump's doing everything perfectly. I'm not saying that. I don't think Professor Buckley's saying that. And we'll get into that and allow him to expand on his uh, article there and uh, 
uh, bring us the reasons why he was talking about that. Um, yesterday, yesterday, all this week, actually, we've been talking about identity politics. We've been talking about uh, intersectional feminism. And, you know, we, we got into it even further on, on yesterday's show about uh, the just the, the absolute nonsense that's going on in universities today. And I'm going to ask Professor Buckley, you know, if anything like this is happening down at George Mason, since, I, since I'll uh, have him in the interview here. And it just amazes me how these child adults want to tell the, hopefully, universities and colleges have right-thinking adults that, that don't let these child adults get away with what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying that these uh, young folks going into college universities don't have freedom of speech and they don't have freedoms, uh, but they don't have life experiences behind them to go along with their ideology. And honestly, I think that's where we're at. Uh, in my discussions on a couple of videos that I've been watching uh, to get my mind wrapped around certain subjects like intersectional feminism uh, and also what's going on on college campuses and why people think it's going on. Um, it just, uh, it, it really does amaze me that these, and some of them are bright young students, how they can, how they can even think uh, to be preaching or teaching or whatever you want to call it, uh, they're what I would consider their intellectual betters. And I, I guess I was just raised in a different era. Uh, that I was told to respect my elders or taught to respect my elders, sometimes painfully taught, but I was taught to respect my elders. I was taught to respect authority, but not blindly, not blindly. You know, uh, Reagan would say, trust but verify. My dad would teach me the same thing. Yeah, trust people, but verify what they're saying is true and that, you, that if you were going to use them as an example, that they're a good example to follow. And so, you know, a lot of what I do on the program here, I try to uh, look at things from a, I guess, a layman's understanding. Now, that's not to say that I, I haven't continued my education from high school. I absolutely have. It's not to say I don't have experiences in my life that I can draw on, which I absolutely have, uh, that hopefully have led me down a, a, a better path than what I normally would have went if I didn't if I didn't go through some of my experiences. And I, I do look back a little bit in my youth and wonder how I survived uh, my young adulthood. I really do. And so I'm here with you today. Uh, like I said, in, uh, in about uh, 10 minutes, we're gonna be bringing uh, Professor Buckley up on uh, Skype. Hopefully everything, I checked everything out twice this morning, uh, set my levels. So hopefully he'll be able to hear me. You'll be able to hear him. We'll have a good conversation about what's going on here. So. Um, we want, I want to always try to bring, either through my reading of articles or bringing people on the show to, to talk to us about uh, their articles and some other ideologies that they might have, I always want to bring you what, what I feel are some of the best people in their field and who make the most reasoned argument. And that's, honestly, folks, that's, what, that's the best thing I have to go on, common sense, reason, and logic, because I don't know all these subjects, but when I hear something... Like, like the ideas that are, that are brought forth in intersectional feminism, they don't ring true to me. Matter of fact, they, they, they are odd sounding uh, in their reasoning. Uh, and they just, like I said, they don't fit 
common sense. They don't fit my life experiences. And, and trust me, I have some, I, you know, I was, in the, I was in the military. I was in the Army National Guard. I was in the Navy for four years. I was a truck driver the better part of my life. I interacted with countless racial groups, ethnic groups, uh, diverse backgrounds. Matter of fact, and I don't know if uh, Professor Buckley is going to be surprised at this, but um, I met a lot of people on the road that were, that had bachelor's degrees. And I had, I actually talked to a couple guys across the breakfast counter. Uh, the one guy pulled out his, his bona fides, and, and whether that was true or not, you know, he could have made those up, but he seemed well-learned to me and, and very knowledgeable, but he was a professor of English literature, I think it was, English literature, a professor. He's out there pushing a diesel. So I met, I met all sorts of, you know, all sorts of folks uh, across the spectrum. So uh, I, I'm going to be, uh, I'm looking forward to this interview this morning. Let's get right into the show today. Today's daily Bible reading comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 3. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek God, the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. And what had happened up to this point, folks, uh, when Josiah became king, uh, Israel forgot God. They forgot the law, and they were going after strange and foreign gods and idols. And Josiah came in, found the law that was uh, amongst a bunch of rubbish, had it pulled out, and, and, had it, and started reading it. And then he commanded it to be read to the people and stuff like that. He wanted to, to be right in the sight of God. He wanted to walk in God's precepts. And this is, here's one of these examples from the Old Testament that we as Christians can, can take heart in, that we can do this. God has given us his word. Today's quote comes from Mark Finley. We don't seem to want to worship God who's too big, too authoritative. We seem more comfortable with a deity who's more manageable. And honestly, folks, I think that's exactly... Uh, what's happening in the world today, in, in Christendom anyway, they want, a, they want a God that they can put in their little box instead of worshiping God the way he is and, and how he presents himself to us through his word. Uh, not only how Jesus Christ presented him, but also through uh, the inspired apostles and, and reading in God's word and understanding that we can't limit God. And even though it's easy for us to do because we're finite individuals, we cannot put an infinite, infinite God into a box, into our own preconceptions as it were um, today's short Bible lessons actually by Al Shannon from biblical proof uh, .wordpress.com and he posted this today it says why is it or why is it apathy exists now, apathy exists throughout every aspect of our lives he's talking in re in relationship to the church to Christians why does it ex it exist but let me put this forth to you that I believe that apathy is throughout society one of the reasons one of the reasons why we're in the mess we are in today is because folks in the electorate, uh, the American people, uh, became apathetic early on, you know. And, and I, I, I put the height of that ap apathy and the, the, the cultivating of that apathy back in the early 1900s, around 1913, when a lot of these uh, uh, constitutional amendments came up to them, in particular the 16th Amendment, with the income tax and the 17th Amendment, uh, when it comes to uh, how senators are elected. Before the 17th Amendment, they were appointed 
by the state legislatures or the governors, depending on how the states wanted it set up. And that was a check on the federal government. Well, lo and behold, 1913 comes along to get the 17th Amendment taken, uh, put into place, and they, they've taken the ability for the states to put a check and balance on the federal government and put the senators in direct elections in their states, which always seemed kind of strange to me, especially after I started studying the Constitution, because we already have elected representatives at, at the, uh, the district levels, at our congressional levels, you know, in our con congressional districts we have in each and every state. So I always thought that was kind of weird, but uh, that they would do that, especially, you know, reading through the Constitution as it originally was written and, and going over and reading some of the um, thoughts of uh, like uh, George Mason and James Madison and some of the other ones, um, Hamilton, uh, uh, George, or uh, um, uh, uh, my brain just went blank on one of the other writers of the uh, Federalist Papers, Jay was his last name. Anyway. Uh, you can see their thoughts, their thought process on this whole thing. You know, they were very uh, prolific writers, as it were, a lot of the founders and the framers, so we can understand exactly what what they were thinking. And that's, that's why we can go back, if we have a hard time understanding the Constitution, just go back and read what they were thinking about, why they did what they did on certain aspects of the Constitution. It's like, oh, okay, now I understand. Instead of trying to uh, put modern understandings to the Constitution, and forgetting about what the original intent was. So, and this is what something, you know, that I, I try to do all the time on this show. I try to bring to you common sense and logic when it comes to the Constitution. And sometimes, sometimes I'm, I think I'm good at it. Sometimes I think I fail at it. And, uh, but I strive. I strive on towards the goal of making sure that folks understand and know what the Constitution is. And, and I'm sure... Uh, men like F.H. Uh, Buckley, Professor Buckley, do the same thing from what I've read about him on his uh, biography and stuff like that. So <clears throat> let's uh, now, uh, uh, now uh, Professor Buckley is a foundation professor at George Mason University Scalia School of Law, and he has a book coming out at the end of November called The Republic of Virtue, How We Tried to Ban Corruption Failed and what to do about it. And I'm kind of excited to actually uh, ask him a couple questions about uh, that new writing there. So while we're still, while I'm still talking here, I'm gonna bring uh, Professor Buckley up here on Skype and get things going here. Hey. Good morning, Professor Buckley. Can you hear me okay? I can, hold on, let me make sure. Hold on, can you see me? Yes, I can see you just fine. Okay, let me move this so the light is better. By, by the way, I love your hat. Thank you very much, yeah. <laughs> um, how, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Nope. Is this okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. The levels look good. Uh, I'm not echoing on your end, am I? Yeah, no, hold on. Let me just adjust this a, little, a wee bit. All right. Um, let me see. Is that better? That's great. You're right in the center of my picture there. And, yeah. Uh, now. Okay. Good. I'm 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 thankful that you're. Is that an assistant that you have that actually got in contact with me? Hold on. Your voice just broke up. Okay. I don't know if it's my internet connection. 
Louis the C. Yeah, you're. Uh, uh, by the way, I tried it this morning with my headset, and the sound wasn't any better. I mean, this is as good as it gets. Okay. No, you sound good on my end. Okay, good. Yeah, you're a little indistinct. Oh. So, you know, maybe, hey, conceivably that's me, but whatever. <laughs> it, it could be the internet connection between you and me. Okay, all right. Well. So, I'm, I'm pumping out the volumes here right now, and everything looks, like I said, all my volumes look good here. So, we'll, we'll muddle through this. I would, I would only suggest, yeah, I'd only suggest that you speak kind of slowly. Okay. Yeah. I, I do tend to, to rush my words sometimes. You know, I didn't hear the last three words. I tend to rush my words when I'm talking. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. Where are you calling from? I, I actually live outside of Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Okay. All right. And, Where the and, hell's that? What's that? <laughs> Where it, the hell is that? It's uh, north of uh, Harrisburg, PA, on the Susquehanna River. Oh, I, I've i driven by there. It's beautiful. Yes, it is. Now, are you down at the university? I Well, right now I'm at my house in Alexandria, Virginia, but okay. I teach at George Mason. Right. Okay. Okay. So I know, uh, I used to drive trucks, so I know that area pretty well uh, yeah. down through there. Yeah, What I, I, I go up and see my mother in Toronto, and there are a couple of ways back, and one of them is right down the river there. And uh, fabulously beautiful. I mean, it's worth the trip. Well, if you if you ever get on Route 11 and 15 down down past uh, yeah. Susquehanna, you go right past Sunbury, Shemokin Dam, Sealands Grove. Yeah, I went I went right by them. I mean, it gets pretty butt ugly after once you get down to Harrisburg, <laughs> but you know, but thereafter it's great. I wasn't going to say that. I've you know, I've seen a lot of the country, and if I had my choice, I'd rather go through the area between here and Alexandria the back way. I, as a truck truck driver, I, I tried to stay off the highways going around yeah. D.C. I always tried to go uh, around the back way. So, but yeah. I actually been by George Mason University. It's a beautiful campus down there. That's uh, yeah. I'm actually in Arlington, Virginia. The law school is about a mile from the Potomac. Okay. It's the other side of Fort Myer. Okay. Well, what what intrigued me, and like I said, I, I think you're, um, I was trying to pull up the name here, uh, Anna. Yeah, right. Um, she got a hold of me, and I was like, I was totally surprised, uh, you know, that uh, uh, she found that I was talking about your article. And the reason why I was talking about your article is because the title intrigued me, uh, you know, tr Behind Trump's Latest Moves, A Return to Constitutional Government. And I'm like... Uh, you know, and, and not that I don't read the post a lot, but that's where the, the article actually yeah. originated when I saw that. And so I just, you know, she gave me the opportunity to talk to you. So I just wanted to ask you some question about, questions about that, because usually in the media, you don't hear. And I, I know this, I, you know, as I read through the article, it's not a, 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 a total endorsement of, of President Trump, but, you know, I look at I look at all presidents. If they do something right, I'll praise them. If they do something wrong, uh, then I'll make a comment about it and tell you why I think what they did was wrong. And like I said, your article intrigued me. Can you uh, tell me a little bit why you know what what you came up with this? You know, besides the what you talked about in here, why you uh, would frame it such a way that to return to uh, constitutional government? 
Yeah, well, uh, happy to do so. First of all, I am a Trump supporter. I mean, I've written okay. speeches for the candidate. I like the guy. I voted for the fellow. Um, I've advised on, on matters involving the campaign. Um, but one thing that really bothered me was unfair accusations that Trump was going to rule as a kind of unconstitutional monarch. The reason why that bothered me so much is I teach constitutional law, and if anybody was behaving like a king, it was Obama, <laughs> right? Yes. You see, what happened with Obama was he had an eight-year term, but only a two-year window where he could pass legislation with a friendly Congress. And for the last six years of his term, he had Republicans holding the cards in Congress, and he couldn't do anything, so we had six years of blockage. And for the first couple of years, nothing happened. And then for the last four years, uh, he thought, well, I don't need Congress. I've got a pen. I've got a phone. I can do it by myself. And so what we had as a consequence were things like the waivers for Obamacare, uh, the Iran Treaty, things that should have been run through Congress, but which he purported to do by himself. And, you know, the courts were starting to rein this in. But, um, you know, before it really went too far, Donald Trump was elected. And instead of ruling like a king, all that Trump has done has been to unwind, uh, reverse some of those unconstitutional waivers and treaties and the like. So this is a return to constitutional government. Now... And, and I've done some research on this, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There are two ways to dismantle an executive order, isn't there? One, one is through Congress, and the other one is a, another president can actually take, uh, dis, I guess, dismiss uh, a, an executive order. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, politics matters, right? I <laughs> it mean, should. the American people wanted some form of health protection, only not in the form of Obamacare. And they elected a guy who said he was going to repeal and replace it, right? And what he did is he tried to do it through Congress for seven months. Mm -hmm. We saw that got him. And he's not in the process of trying to write his own Obamacare, his own Trump care. All he did is he said things where Trump stepped over the line now they're toast. That's why I was elected. What specifically he did, or what Obama did, which was unconstitutional, was he spent $1 trillion. He gave $1 trillion to the insurance companies with the idea this would trickle down to ordinary consumers. <clears throat> well, you know, an economist will tell you, uh, you know, if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. It, it, you know, it doesn't work like that. Yes. So it was an absolute gift. Um, you know, Obama's gift was an absolute gift to an interest group that supported him financially during the election. So apart from being unconstitutional, it was corruption of the worst kind of crony capitalism. It just stunk all the way around. So I'm delighted that, that politically this happened. I'm delighted that constitutionally it happened. If we're supposed to get something to replace Obamacare, well, then we're supposed to do it by way of Congress. And if that can't happen, well, that's kind of what the framers intended. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a free market guy. 
Uh, and and I've, I've been told I've been radical on this, but I, I just think that, that especially health insurance and health care should be as close to the, to the free market as we can get it and allow it to well, be. Well, that's right. And, and in fact, you know, it, it isn't rocket science. You know, one of the problems here is the guys who amongst conservatives have come up with their own plans to fix the problem. It's like a Rube Goldberg machinery. I mean, it's some of their ideas are like Hillary care. They're so complicated, but it's real simple in the end. Okay, I mean, start with the idea that we'd like to have a free market as much as we can, one. But two, we also want to take care of those people who are, you know, have, have really serious um, issues with, where they can't afford assurance. And how many, the point is, how many people are we talking about here? We're only talking about 400,000 people in that category. So if the government took care of those people and let the rest of us get on with our lives, that'd be pretty good. <laughs> that'd be a lot less expensive, wouldn't it? Pardon me? It'd be a lot less expensive. It would be a lot less expensive. You know, the, the problem with Obamacare was he set up these exchanges for 20 million people. The first thing he did is he cut waivers for 12 million of them. The unions, okay, yeah. his buddies. That left 8 million people. That 8 million people, they were, you know, they were they had to pick up the tab for the 400,000 I was talking about. All right? Yep. I'm not. I mean, I get my insurance by way of a state plan here in Virginia, you know, Anthem. Mm -hmm. I'm not cross-subsidizing those 400,000. It's only the 8 million stuck with Obamacare who do. And that's why premiums went up for that group. So there's, you know, there's a way of solving this. It's not rocket science. The general revenue should pick up the care of those 400,000, right? Right. And, and, and by, you know, by the way, you know, as you know, we're not exactly in a free market heaven here because we're already 49% single payer. It's called Medicare and Medicaid. Right. And as, as for the rest, the tax incentives for health insurance in the tax code, right, the deductions for employers, employees, that's not exactly, you know, libertarian paradise, right? No, it's not. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you kind of start with a totally messed up system. Well, I, I have, uh, uh, he, he's not living up here in Pennsylvania, he moved to, uh, he retired and moved to Florida, but uh, a friend of mine he used to go to church with, um, he was in the insurance uh, department at, a, at our local, it's actually Geisinger Medical Center, huge uh, medical complex, they have branches all over the place around here and they have their own insurance, and we had talked about this before Obamacare came in, and he told me a lot of the expense of folks who didn't have insurance. You know, you're breaking up, and I'm not hearing you. Okay, let me let me slow down a little bit. It's probably like I said, it's probably me talking too fast. Um, my friend who was working in the insurance department at a local uh, hospital, huge hospital, Geisinger Medical, up here, he told me uh, that before Obamacare and all this came about, if you came in without insurance. Uh, the hospital picked it up because they actually uh, charge a little bit more for everything else uh, that folks that had insurance, and I was okay with that. 
to pay for folks who couldn't absolutely afford insurance. And there, to me, there's a lot of free market uh, solutions. You've gone silent on me. I don't know why I'm going silent. Let me, let me bring this back up here real quick. Um, am, I, am I still... Well, I can't say I'm hearing you, but I am overhearing you. Oh, you're overhearing me. Okay, let me back. Let me back this down. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. That's probably okay. I was over. I was. I was overdriving stuff. I guess. I'm still kind of new at this uh, interview with the videos and everything like that. I've been. I've been testing it out on friends and and. Uh, does that sound a lot better? Yeah. Okay. So I was. I was overdriving it. Um. It used to be the hospitals would charge a little extra for other services to cover folks who couldn't afford it. And well, you, everybody back then believed in the Hippocratic Oath. The hospital says it happened, had to take everybody. But even regular doctors at the time, you know, old-fashioned GPs, mm -hmm. didn't turn anybody away. I mean, my father was a GP. Nobody ever got turned away. Mind you, he has such bad debts, he never ever had to pay taxes, but that kind of went with the territory. You know, you build yeah. people, and, and if they can't pay, it's a bad debt, and it goes against your income. Yeah, and I grew up, with, you know, I'm, I'm 55, and, and I, I grew up in rural uh, northwest Ohio. And that's, we had those quote-unquote country doctors. And I, I remember, you know, I don't remember them turning anybody away. And I remember there was a couple times, you know, I grew up on the poor side of things. Uh, I remember a couple times that my folks made deals with them, uh, you know, to pay this or pay that. And, you know, everything worked out and, and everybody got care, the care that they needed. Right. Um, well, I didn't quite make all that up. But in any event... Um... You know, we can fix the problems. Um, partly it's a matter of bringing the Dems to the table. I think that probably the best solution to this is one where you get everybody at the table, including the Dems. That's how you got to solve it. And if it gets bad enough, maybe the, maybe the Dems will come to the table. Right, right now they still own Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. And it, it looks to me like uh, the Democrats really don't uh, want to fix this issue they they're they're blaming republicans and conservatives uh, for not helping them fix obamacare well that's kind of the problem of separation of powers right you get a lot of finger pointing and nobody takes responsibility we've seen that before um you know but you know ultimately it's a game of chicken Right. Mm -hmm. You get a bunch of finger pointing. And the question is, who is the public going to blame? And right now it's not clear who's going to blame. But I mean, we, we saw this before in negotiations about raising the debt ceiling in 2011. And in the end, it was the Democrats who paid the price in terms of giving up control of Congress completely. So, you know, if uh, if it's the case that the Democrats want to play that game, they may be cutting their own throats. And, and, and some of them are smart enough to realize this. I mean, you also have these, you know, the, the people who want to impeach Obama, uh, impeach Trump, rather. 
But but there are people who are smart enough, like Schumer, to think that's not a winning ticket. Well, what are they going to impeach him on? Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. it 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 can't happen. No. But it sounds good for the partisans of a party who are deep into hatred of Trump, deep into social liberalism, deep into feminism, abortion rights, identity politics, Black Lives Matter. If that's where you're coming from, basically, you know, any compromise, any any legislation is DOA. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, uh, the next point, you know, besides besides the health care issue and the executive orders, um, it comes up to the Iran deal. And is what? It comes, uh, the, you were talking about the Iranian nuclear deal. About the what? Iranian Iranian nuclear deal? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the treaty. Yeah, see, the, you know, the way the framers designed the Constitution, they didn't think that one person should have the right to bind the entire country to a treaty. Okay, and so they said, well, it, if, if you're going to have a treaty, it needs to be ratified by two-thirds of a Senate. Now, you know, that can be difficult to achieve. Um, you know, this is why America didn't enter the League of Nations after the First World War. Wilson couldn't ram that through the Senate. Um, and it's why the Iranian treaty would have been dead on arrival in America, which is why Obama purported to tell us or told us that it's it's not really a treaty. It's just something I'm I'm kind of doing on my own. It's just an agreement. It's not a treaty. The problem with that approach is, you know, what is done extra constitutionally can be reversed constitutionally by the next president if it's such an unpopular deal. And that's where we are. And after, you know, after all, Trump didn't rip up the treaty. Uh, he he responded to legislation uh, called INARA, which required the president every day, every 90 days, to certify that the Iranians were in compliance. Well, the whole point behind this was explicitly to prevent the Iranians to work towards nuclear weapons. Okay, but the Iranians prevent us from observing what's happening at their nuclear plants. So. They are contravening the letter of the agreement, but they're also contravening the spirit of the agreement. The spirit of the agreement was this was meant to lead to, um, you know, to, to peace in the Middle East. But the Iranians took this as, a, as an opportunity to become one of the dominant powers in the Middle East. Now, you know, that's basically, I think, what Obama wanted. Frankly, it's what Obama privately promised the Iranians prior to the 2008 election. I mean, our foreign policy for from 2008 to 2016 was a pronounced tilt towards people who hate America, right? It was a tilt towards the Iranian. It was a tilt towards the Muslim Brotherhood. It was also an abandonment of, of some of our traditional friends, such as Israel. And if, if people in foreign countries, such as General Sisi in Egypt, ever desired to take on Obama's friends in the Muslim Brotherhood, then automatically we were opposed to Sisi. So it was a, a pronounced desire to make friends with people who despise us while showing the back of our hand to the people who actually are pro-American. Uh, it could not have been a more disastrous foreign policy, and, and frankly, Trump was elected in part because of our disgust at, at, at issues of foreign policy. 
So all he did, all that, so all that happened, uh, I guess it was last week, was Trump failed to certify that the Iranians were properly behaving. And in so doing, he kicked it over to Congress to figure out what was going to happen. And in particular, he kicked it over to Senator Corker, who's emerged as a, as a principal critic uh, of Trump. So the, the message here politically is, oh, you don't have, you have some problems with me, Corker. Let's see what you want to do about it. And the, the, the biggest issue I have with those on the left about this was all Trump did was follow the law. He did. All he did was follow the law. You know, the law, in fact, was something cooked up by Corker as a face-saving gesture not to require Trump to seek two-thirds approval in the Senate. In other words, Obama leaned on the congressional Republicans, and as is their want, they caved. So, you know, I mean, properly what they should have done is said, excuse me, Obama, what you're doing here is called a treaty, and and you're not going to get two-thirds Senate approval, so this is just not going to happen. But, you know, as, as, as they typically do, the, the congressional Republicans caved on this issue. And what we're seeing from people like Corker is, you know, the outrage of people who are being caught up for their weakness. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the, the whole treaty, to me, I think was just a sham, just like you explained. And, yeah. the, and the way the way President Obama enacted it was totally unconstitutional, you know. And well, yeah, it was unconstitutional and bad for America. See, what the Iranians are doing, we, we pretty much all know, is in their nuclear facilities, they're moving towards the possibility of creating a nuclear warhead. At the same time, on, on, on the pretext that they want to do space, space exploration, they're building missiles, um, long-range missiles that could attack their hated enemy, Israel, and intercontinental missiles that could attack people on the east coast of the United States. And, we, you know, we know this is happening, and we also know that the Iranian mullahs are people who despise the United States quite as much as the North Koreans do. So, you know, it, it, it no longer is possible to do that which typically happens in Washington, which is kick the can down the road. Well, yeah, and, and the you talked about the space exploration, that part of that excuse of the Iranians. Yeah. Um, I thought they were friends with Russia, and Russia right now is the only ones that's, that are able to put men up into space. That's right. Well, you know, part of what's going on uh, behind the scenes is an effort to subvert the president's desire for better relations with Russia. I mean, Russia has misbehaved in a number of ways. Interfering in the, the American election is, is, is not by far the worst of them. Um, even, you know, Participating in the corruption of Hillary Clinton's State Department is not the worst of them. No, they they've engaged in an invasion of the Ukraine, and they behaved uh, they, you know, in murderous ways. Um, but you know the, the the point about Russia is they're a major power, and any deal with the Russians would be one in which they forswear that kind of behavior. I mean we. 
we, we require a, a deal that achieves peace in the Ukraine, and we require a deal which puts an end to thuggish behavior, but mostly we require a deal in which we are not, we and the Russians, uh, opponents with respect to achieving peace in the Middle East. And we're, you know, we're halfways there, okay? And everybody, I think, must recognize this would be in the interest of the United States. But amongst the critics of Trump on the issue of Russia are people who think it's more important to defeat Trump than to make life better for Americans. So this is, you know, this, this, this you know, the, the administration has wanted to pursue a deal with Russia. It has found itself impossible to do so because of the uh, these stories about Russian interference in the election, stories that are going nowhere, but they remain on the table. And while they're on the table, we can't achieve our foreign policy objectives. Uh, absolutely. And, and in, in my opinion, I believe Trump was just handed a snake's nest when it comes to foreign yeah. policy. Yeah, and, and, and nothing really, you know, nothing was done improperly with respect to Russia. I mean, there were some people in the administration who I think behaved somewhat foolishly. Uh, General Flynn, for example, uh, had dealings with the Turks that I think were uh, compromised the administration. I think his conversations with the Soviet ambassador were a big nothing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, but this is not a guy who was sophisticated in the ways of Washington. Uh, and he's gone. Yeah. Uh, while he was there, by the way, the Iranians were paying attention to him. I mean, he was around for about three weeks max. Yeah. Uh, but while he was there, he sent a few messages across the bow of the Iranians with respect to their missiles, and they backed off. And since then they're back in business of building missiles again. Yeah, so like, like I said, I, I, try to I try to follow foreign policy, but again, it's like a, uh, a snake pit and everything is just so messed up. And if you reach in for one snake, you get bit by another one. And I, right. think, I, I think, and this is my hope with uh, President Trump, and it looks like he's gonna be able to do this, is maybe unravel uh, some of the, the foreign policy de debacles that we've had in the past that uh, I, I just believe President Obama kicked a lot of these things down the road. You know, he was doing things for his buddies and stuff like that that were not in the best I, interest I, of America. I, I didn't get all that, I'm afraid, but um, I'm going to have to run in a moment. Okay. But, yeah, but um, listen, it's great talking to you and okay. hang in there and I think it'll all turn out. Okay, thank you, Professor Buckley, for coming on the show, and uh, maybe we'll have you on in the future. Thank you so much. Okay. I'd enjoy it. Thanks. Bye. All right, folks, that was uh, Professor Buckley. We did have some issues there with the audio. I, I do apologize for that. Um, I... Look, look, folks, we're, I'm, I'm striving to create a, a good show here, and I'm still going through some growing pains uh, of my own here. And uh, uh, I, I think it was mainly an Internet connection problem we had there because uh, I've had some tests with other folks and everything was working fine. So, But we're going to work on this for the future. But that was Professor F.H. Buckley out of George Mason um, 
and that would be the um, uh, University, uh, George Mason University Scalia School of Law. Uh, he had to run there, and, and a lot of it probably was because of our conversation. We couldn't get back and forth, but I do want to show you, um, oh, let's see here. Um, this, if you're on YouTube, this is the um, Amazon site for his upcoming book, The Republic of Virtue, How We Can, or How We Tried to Ban Corruption Failed, and What We Can Do About It. And basically... Uh, there's a, it's uh, coming out on, the, on November 28th. I'm actually looking forward to that. I, I went back and read some of Professor Buckley's older articles, and they're fantastic. I encourage you to go read them. Uh, they are actually over at, um, he's on, uh, the New, he, New York Post carries his articles, and also uh, the American Spectator, which I, I really enjoy reading, the American Spectator also has his articles over there. So if you just look up FH F. H. Buckley, you'll get to his articles. I love his hat that he had on there. That was great. And uh, there's also a Wikipedia posting where he has a, a lot more um, history behind him. So again, I want to thank him for that. I'll be shooting him an email uh, after the show to thank him for coming on. And we're going to strive to continue to improve things here on the with the audio and everything for Skype. I was having some issues uh, a while ago. Got my mom on the phone, and it seemed like everything was uh, being taken care of except for uh, every now and then my mom said my audio would drop, and I thought we had that. Uh, we actually had that fixed, and I guess we didn't uh, actually have that fixed. So we are going to strive to do that in the future. Now, since we're done with the the interview with uh, uh, Professor Buckley. And I, I, I really like his ex explanations of things, and, and actually I'm, uh, I was very intrigued to hear his explanations of, you know, and some of the backstory because of that article, and it confirmed a lot of things that I was thinking all along uh, with that. So I'm not, I wasn't too far wrong, as it were, and I tried, like I said, I tried to, I tried to do my studies. I tried to study up on things to make sure uh, that what I'm actually talking about is sensible, logic, common sense, the whole nine things. Uh, and, and that it's informed. I want to be an informed commentator. I want to be an informed American. I don't want to go around like these child adults that think they know everything and think they've been through everything and want to right all the perceived wrongs of the world and they have no clue about what they're talking about whatsoever. I got a couple of videos I want to show with, share with you. I'm going to probably go clear to the... Um, uh, probably go over my time on Blog Talk Radio, but I, I'm set up for two hours on YouTube. I'm probably going to go close to that that time there, and I'll let you know. But I have a couple videos here I want to get into, and the first one is um, uh, "Are Universities Killing Free Speech?" And this is um, let me get the, I got to bring this article back up, and I thought I had it up and I didn't. Um, mm hmm. Well, this is actually, I have to bring up a show notes page. Um, this, is, this is a Facebook video, and it's uh, made by filmmaker Rob Montz. Uh, at, and at, he goes back to his alma mater, Brown University, to find out, are universities killing free speech? Now, I'm going to play this in its entirety. Um, right now, I'm not monetized, and hopefully I don't get hit for this, for sharing uh, this and and, and uh, I don't think uh, Mr. Monster would mind me sharing this, but this 
this goes to show you what universities and colleges are dealing with and very few colleges and universities out there are standing up to these adult children they, they they're not doing a good job of standing up to them so let me um let me get this uh, set up here and uh, let you listen to this Okay. Heterosexual white males have always dominated the space. And so one in which heterosexual men. Well, homosexual, it, it don't matter. White males are at the top of the hierarchy. It don't this is Brown University, the elite Ivy League college famed for its radical student activism and wide open curriculum that, yes, does technically allow you to major in drum circle studies. It's also my beloved alma mater. I entered Brown about a decade and a half ago, perfectly embodying that charming paradox common to newly minted adults. I'd never known less about the world and yet somehow also never had more confidence in my opinions about it. The endless campus debates burned away a lot of the stupid stuck to my brain. But now that vital campus dialogue is being snuffed out. Brown has been overrun by this nasty, censoring species of student activism that's overtaking college campuses across the country. You need to get out! Back in the fall of 2013, former New York City Police Chief Ray Kelly was invited to give a lecture about his controversial stop and frisk policies. Protesters picketed outside, filled the lecture hall, and then they did this. Thank you, uh, they shouted down administrators. They shouted down students. Racism is not for debate. Then they got their way. They didn't respond to our demand to cancel the lecture, so we canceled it for them. This is not the Brown that I know. This is students weaponizing victimhood to stifle debate. And things have gotten steadily worse since then. So I went back to campus to find out why. ought first and foremost be a place in which reason determines outcomes, not the ability to throw tantrums or fits. The people who perpetrated this act of 
tyranny, well remembered in heroic terms at this university, is held up as an example of student activism as a positive thing. That's an error. It's a profound error. We all collectively, you know, um, need to, you know, just own. Um, sometimes things don't go the way we plan. And, and certainly in the wake of that, there was a lot of learning that happened. I got called a white supremacist when I tried to go inside. administrators did even worse than capitulate a year later. The writer Wendy McElroy was invited to be on the con side in a debate about whether America has a rape culture. Student critics framed McElroy's opinions as a kind of mind violence. They set up one of those infamous safe spaces running videos of puppies to protect themselves from her really hurtful beliefs. The political majority on this campus believe that speech that disagrees with the conclusions of the left is in and of itself an act of violence. It becomes in this moral calculus, as warped as it may seem to outsiders, rational to shut down something like the Ray Kelly lecture. University President Christina Paxton preemptively denounced McElroy in a school-wide email and set up a competing lecture. There has been a lot of pain and we wanted to create the kind of respectful, thoughtful uh, climate that invites those conversations without harming individuals. Whatever thin caricature student critics had constructed of McElroy was promptly shattered by the actual content of her speech. When I was 16, I was raped, and brutally so. I had a hemorrhage in my right eye that left me blind. I know the pain and the importance of violence against women because I see half of the world because of it. North America is not a rape culture, and it is an insult to women who live in one that women here, with so much freedom and so much opportunity, are trying to share the same status with them. Shortly thereafter, in a closed-door faculty meeting, a small group of professors introduced a resolution that simply reaffirmed a section in Brown's own founding charter on the value of the free exchange of ideas. That resolution did not pass. Leading the charge against it, a star professor named Trisha Rose, who said that even considering the resolution again would extend the pain. It's not an argument. It's a move of power, not a move of reason. The main thing they want is a conformity. Just fall into line. Where some things cannot be said, some ideas cannot be spoken. Here's an illuminating nugget about Trisha Rose. She has a lecture in which she literally has students pledge their loyalty to her politics. I am not personally responsible for racism. Or in fact, any other vast form of structural oppression. Even though I very likely benefit personally from some aspect of them. Many students in last year's freshman class received an orientation pamphlet that denounced data and statistics as structures of oppression and mapped the unsafe spaces on campus, among them this historic lecture hall because its portraits of white former university presidents constitute microaggressions. 
And guess who the administration picked to give the opening convocation address? I'm not sure I went to the equivalent of this when I was a first year at Yale, but it's different there. Professor Rose showed them that a string of fashionable jargon is indeed an acceptable substitute for an argument. We have used in the post-civil rights era the ideology of the illusion of colorblindness as the rhetorical vehicle for the maintenance and development of a system like the prison industrial complex. Now, the excesses of Brown's activists obscure some legitimate grievances. Most importantly, of course there's such a thing as privilege. I'm its distilled essence. I'm the product of a plush Los Angeles private school. I've never suffered racist slights. I didn't have to take on a single cent in student loans. The Ivy League was originally built by and for people like me. And activists are right to demand that it evolve to better accommodate students that don't share my advantages. Last fall, Brown unveiled a multi-million dollar plan that, in part, did just that. And here's how student activists thanked them. They stormed the president's office and shouted down the provost. Can I just make a suggestion? Um, no, I'm no. sorry. No. No, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to, can we just have a conversation? Like, no, yeah. no, the problem, the problem that they're having is heterosexual white males have always dominated the space. And so one in which heterosexual, well, homosexual, it, it don't matter, white males are at the top of the hierarchy, it don't matter. This is not a grand battle against institutionalized injustice. This is an addiction to indignation. We also have obligations That same semester, Brown's student newspaper published a pair of columns which essentially argued that European colonialism generated some economic benefits for Native Americans. These columns made easy tinder for another explosion of student outrage. We begged this university to hold the BDH accountable. We should not have to be in pain for you to do something. The paper's editors buckled, retracting one of the columns and denouncing both as racist essentially is a climate of censorship. What you say has to conform to our sort of worldview, and if it doesn't, then you're a racist. If you talk about what happened in 1492 in a particular tone, then you're out of bounds. Then you're making the environment impossible. Then you're exercising a kind of power that needs to be countered by limiting what you say. Brown's top administrators implicitly encouraged this censorship. When the administration says that the Herald has rightfully owned the harm they caused, you're saying that the Herald caused harm by, by publishing a dissenting and unpopular opinion. And that is the norm that you were expressing to the, you know, to the community. You know, there are people that were really, um, you know, that are really, continue to be uh, traumatized, that continue to be uh, concerned and in, in, in really deep ways. If you're an indigenous person and someone says the Indians didn't get their land stolen, if it had been left for them, they'd still be living in poverty today. Somebody says that. Somebody says something like that. The answer in every case is to take the offender to the intellectual woodshed, which is to say, to refute what they just got through saying, to point out how it's silly, ahistorical, superficial, and uh, without ethical foundation. That's what the university is for. The university is there to teach people how to do that. We preempt that process of education with a capitulation to the presuppositions of adolescence. We will have abdicated our responsibility and not deserve the pay. 
it's perfectly natural for college students to think they have all the answers. The university system was specifically designed to puncture that warm womb of pure certainty. One of my favorite articulations at this point comes from a university administrator named Ruth Simmons, who called learning the antithesis of comfort. Oh, and who's Ruth Simmons? She's the former president of Brown University. Born into back-breaking poverty in the Jim Crow South, Ruth trained as a professor in French literature and served in the administration of several elite colleges before being appointed president of Brown. She was the first black president of an Ivy League university. Why does a tenant farmer's kid decide to study French literature? Ah, ah, because everything belongs to me. There is nothing, there is nothing that is withheld from me simply because I'm poor. The semester right before Ruth took over, the right-wing provocateur David Horowitz had taken out an ad in the student newspaper criticizing reparations for slavery. Incensed student activists stole all the copies. That controversy was still simmering when Ruth came to campus. Did she justify this censorship by denouncing Horowitz as an agent of oppression whose very existence constituted an erasure of her struggle? No. She insisted Horowitz be invited back to speak. I was there. So was Ruth. She sat in the front row. The collision of views and ideologies is in the DNA of the academic enterprise. We don't need any collision avoidance technology here. Thank you very much. Universities foster an environment where the exchange of ideas can lead to deepening of our human understanding. These institutions are a fragile and precious achievement. This idea that we're going to shut you up because we don't like what you say, that's the enemy of this achievement. That's what's at stake. All right, folks, that was the uh, that was um, a, a small documentary of our university's killing free speech by filmmaker Rob Montz. And I am shocked and appalled at the behavior of the students. I'm shocked and appalled at the behavior of the administration that allow these child adults to get away with this. And I'm more than shocked and appalled. I am totally peeved at the parents who raised these brats. And, and, and I'm sorry I used some words like that, but folks, the, the, this is just infuriating to me. These kids coming in thinking that they have all the answers and they don't. Not even, again, yesterday we talked about this a little bit. That one clip where the kid, the kid's like, you're taking away my right to sit here and listen to this free speech. And someone boarded out, well, we can't debate racism. What? What would they say if somehow we had a time machine and we brought Frederick Douglass to an American campus today, would he be allowed to talk about race? Would he be allowed to talk about slavery? 
I bet you would find some student groups out there that would not allow him to talk when it came to racial issues like that. And in America, it was to a certain extent a racial issue because you, I bet you, I bet you these students on these college campuses don't realize or may not have never been taught that the first slave owner in America was a black man. And secondly, there were black slave owners in the South that actually owned slaves. So tell me how it's totally a race issue. It's not. Slavery is a freedom, justice, and liberty issue. The idea that one human being can own another human being should be abhorrent to liberty lovers and freedom lovers and, and folks that want to see justice. Roll down like a river. You know, have everybody have the same opportunities. What happened was, it became a race issue. And it was, folks, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about it, you know, let me, put, let me phrase this the right way so the uh, SJTs out there don't get upset. Um, it was easier for the Jim Crow laws and for the racists to actually go after black folks after the Civil War, after the emancipation, after, out, after slavery was outlawed in the United States and its territories. It was easier to go after them because of their skin color. But again, was it all about race? Or did it develop into something that became all about race? That's the question you need to answer. And these, these child adults on these campuses, again, I just, I have to shake my head. Are you kidding me? They're, seriously, folks, they're barely out of diapers, and they're on college campuses telling professors and administrators that they're wrong about these certain subjects and cannot articulate why they're wrong. And won't even allow debate to go on to see if they're wrong. Robert Spencer was down at the University of Florida. Again. I don't know if it's again, but yesterday I was watching uh, uh, Tim Poole. He was reporting on that. And there was a huge demonstration out there. Fine. And it looked like it didn't turn violent or anything. I, and I honestly, I could care less about Richard Spencer, honestly. You know, because I don't agree with his ideology. Uh, but... I don't agree with shutting his speech down. And there was folks there that were, you could hear him talking in the background of he shouldn't be allowed to speak. Well, if we don't allow morons like Richard Spencer to speak, and I, and, and I just, t let me take that back. I, I don't know if he's a moron or not. I think his ideology is moronic. But if we don't allow Americans like Richard Spencer to speak and be able to debate the points that he puts out in his speech, we're, we're less of a nation. We're less of a culture. We're less of a society. Because if we shut down all the speech that we find offensive, and, and if you heard in the video there, liberals who disagree with your points or your ideology, that's a, an aggression against them. That's hate against them. Are you kidding me? I will never, never give power to words in order to hurt me. Never. And if you're hurt by simple words, that's on you. That's not on me. 
if what I say about any subject is offensive to you, and you want to say it's an, a microaggression or a macroaggression or it's hateful or hurtful to you, and it's damaging you, that's on you, not me. Because my words don't hurt you. Now, they may emotionally hurt you because you have a wrong ideology. Do you ever think of that? Do you ever think the reason why they hurt you is because your parents were whatever the adjective you want to use, lazy, in, inconsiderate, absent, whatever. And these, look folks, it's not the fault of the kids that their parents raised them this way. I'm talking about these kids in these videos, these child adults. It's not the, it's not the fault of the kids that they were raised this way. You got to put that back on the parents. Right where it rightfully is. And I, honestly, if, if my son were in college or university and I'm paying for it and he's acting out like this, you better believe I'm going to sit down and have a talk with him. Now, it may, not, it may not bear fruit in this talk. He may just blow me off completely and that's fine. But we're going to have a talk about it. Because it's one thing, it's one thing to hold and I would never crush the ideologies of my son that he holds. Now, will I debate them? You ask my wife. Yes, I will debate the merits of his arguments and his positions politically, economically, whatever. I will debate those merits with him. And that's okay. still love my son. I'm not going to throw him out with the bathwater. However, if my son was ever disrespectful to other adults, even in a university or college setting, to the extent these child adults are, you better believe there will be some consequences. One would be if I'm footing the bill for that, if he keeps it up and doesn't go and apologize to these folks, I'm pulling the funding and let him get through college himself. But you don't see parents even doing that. It's not the idea that they have these ideas and they want to make sure that their side's heard. It's the disrespect that they have for opposing views of other students it's, it's the idea of the disrespect they show for people, especially adults, that have opposing views from what they have. And it's totally disrespectful and just should never happen that they're disrespectful to like a provost or president of the university or whatever because their little old feelings got hurt because they don't agree with what's being talked about. How do you correct an issue? If you see something as a problem, how do you correct that? Well, first off, you got to get the information out that there is a problem. And I don't care what side of an issue you're on, the good, the bad, the indifferent side, the good, bad, and the ugly, a side of an issue, it has to be put out in, in civil, public discourse. It has to be allowed to be aired. I don't care how repugnant the idea is to you, it must be allowed to be aired in the marketplace of ideas through civil public discourse. When that is not allowed, when that is not allowed, that's when things become intellectually dishonest. These students in that video at Brown University, every one of them that was talking the way they did, being disrespectful and, and, and talking about how these things are hurtful to me, are intellectually dishonest. And I'll say it to their faces if they want. I'll say it to their faces. And the idea. And the one picture in there, you may not know him if you've never seen him. 
Milo Yiannopoulos was there, was on stage, and given and part of the lecture series there at Brown University. And somebody, one of the students is up there and pushing on his face. Push and, and to his credit, he just sat there and took it. Now, again, that student, if I was if I was Milo, and, and I would hope that I could be as, you know, charitable as Milo was, let the student do what he did, but I'd find out who the student was, I would get his name, and then I would go right after that, I'd go right over to security after that and say, I want to file charges against this student. And if campus security wouldn't do anything, I would go to the local police and say, this student aggressed against me. He assaulted me. I want charges filed. If we would start doing that, just that little thing there, and I don't know what Milo did with that. Uh, I, I hope he would do the right thing. I think that's the right thing, that he would bring charges against him. Because you know what happens? If enough students who act this disrespectful to anybody, especially when they lay hands on somebody else, that, that is an aggression. For those of you out there that are on the fence of what a microaggression or macroaggression is, you lay hands on somebody else, that's definitely an aggression, and that is not allowed. That is against the law. It breaks every tenet of freedom and liberty that there is. Because you just aggressed against somebody else. And if enough of these students, that's a felony, folks. That's not a misdemeanor. Now, it could be a misdemeanor battery in some states, but most states, that's a felony. That's assault and battery. And that carries serious consequences, even if even if they don't serve time, but if they just get convicted. A lot of times that'll ruin the student's career. Now people say, well, should we ruin a student's career over this one, you know, th this this one indiscretion? Yeah, yeah, I think you should. I think you should because where were the parents? Why did they teach him? Why didn't they teach him or her that that wasn't okay to aggress against somebody in that manner? Why, where were the parents when they were supposed to be teaching the children, you don't lay hands on somebody else like that. Uh, you don't aggress against somebody else like that because you're infringing on their freedoms and their liberties. And quite frankly, Milo Yiannopoulos had every right to push that student. I'm not saying, you know, get up and put a beat down on that student, which they sorely deserve. But Milo Yiannopoulos had every right to push that student back away from him. And anybody else that gets hands laid on them in that manner, disrespectfully, you know, borderline assault, or like I said, in some states that would be assault, they have every right to push that student back. You know, I would like to think that I could control my temper enough as a Christian that I wouldn't do anything to that student, that I would let them go on. But I have never been in that situation quite like that. I've been in other situations before as a Christian, you lay your hands on me. That's a big no-no. I'm sorry. You're going to regret laying your hands on me, in other words. Since I've been a Christian, I've tried to avoid them situations where someone might do that. Plus, I'm also a pretty big guy. I stand 6'1". I probably make two of my Indianapolis. And honestly, I, I don't go for... You lay your hands on me, that's one thing. But if I'd have been sitting there with Milo Yiannopoulos and you were laying your hands on him, I may not, I may not have been so gracious. I might have intervened. Because, again, folks, where were the parents?
I put a lot of this blame, the, act, the actions of these child adults on the parents. That just reflects their parenting style and what they actually taught their kids. Now, some of these parents might disagree with me, but the, but the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, monkey see, monkey do. Or monkey see what you don't do. Again, I just wanted to share that with you because I thought it was very important. This is what's happening on our college campuses today. This is what's, and I got to tell you that, that a lot of these professors that are in college campuses today are a product of the 60s. And the chickens have definitely come home to roost. I wonder how these college professors who used to be protesters back in the, uh, back in the 60s feel now. And again, I go back to that one college professor. If something is totally erroneous, you should take them to the intellectual woodshed. It should be debated. Guys like Robert Spencer who support white supremacy, they need to be debated. They need to see that their arguments are fallacious. They need to see that what they're doing, their ideology is harmful to a society and a culture. It's no less damaging than these modern day feminists, both male and female feminists, and this whole SJT movement, most of you might know that as the social justice warrior movement, they're not warriors, they're tyrants. That's why I call them SJTs. And again, I just let me make a note here. When I was in this one uh, comment section of a video that I've been watching about, you know, intersectional feminism and feminism in general, uh, I kept switching it from SJW to SJT, and nobody picked up on it in the in the comments. Again, their lack of detail, uh, their lack of this falls outside of my echo chamber, my narrative that I'm in, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. And not that I was insulting them on purpose, I wasn't. I was just being more descriptive, uh, a more accurate description of what they support. They don't support social justice. They support tyranny through the means of social justice. And again, it's, it's amazing to me uh, how many of these parents are allowing their kids to get away with this on campus. It really is. All right, we, be we beat that dead horse quite a bit. Okay. Um, oh, I, I got to share you this article here from a Walter E. Williams. Um, the facts about, let me do something here. I can bring this up uh, over here on my production computer and we can actually read on this uh, together. Let me get this up over here. <laughs> The name of the article by Walter E. Williams is The Facts About Who Pays the Most in Taxes in America. Now, if I'm going to listen to anybody about taxes and who's going to pay the most, it's certainly not going to be Robert B. Rice. It's going to be an economist like Walter E. Williams. And this is over on the DailySignal.com. And they, he published this on October 18th, so that was two days ago, Okay. Walter says, politicians exploit public ignorance. Few areas of public ignorance prov provide as many opportunities for political demagoguery as taxation. Today, some politicians argue that the rich must pay their fair share and label the proposed changes in tax law as tax cuts for the rich. Let's look at who pays what with an eye towards attempting to answer this question. Are the rich paying their fair share? According to the latest IRS data, the payment of income taxes is, is as follows. Americans need 
or, or the top 1% of income earners, those having an adjusted annual gross income of $480,000 plus or higher. Well, folks, to hear tell, to hear tell anti-freedom folks out there in the Democrat Party like Robert B. Reich and his followers over Indivisible Guide, which he actually started him and his other uh, cronies started this. It's not a grassroots uh, organization. Uh, you, they would have you to believe that the 1% one per, one of income earners in America are the uber, uber wealthy. And, and this, uh, honestly, if they go back and research this, some people, I, some friends of mine that were going along with this 1% line, when I showed them some of this data, they were like, what? $480,930 or higher pay 39% of the federal income taxes. That means about 892,000 Americans are stuck with paying 39% of all federal taxes. That's a huge number, 39%. We're talking about taxpayers, not talking about kids, talking about taxpayers. The top 10% of income earners, those having an adjusted gross income of $138,000, uh, $31 pay 70.6% of federal income taxes. About 1.7 million Americans, less than 1% of the population, pay 70.6% of the federal income taxes. Is that fair, or do you think they, they should pay more? By the way, earning $500,000 a year doesn't make one rich. It's not even yacht money. But the fairness question goes further. The bottom 50% of income earners, those having an adjusted gross income of $39,275 or less, pay 2.8% of the federal income tax. 37 million tax filers have no obligation at all. The Tax Policy Center estimates that 45.5% of households will not pay federal income tax this year. There's a severe political problem of so many Americans not having any skin in the game. These Americans become natural constituencies for big spending politicians. After all, if you don't pay federal taxes, what do you care about big spending? Also, if you don't pay federal taxes, why should you be happy about a tax cut? What's in it for you? In fact, you might see tax cuts as threatening your handout programs and folks that I'm stopping the reading. That is the biggest problem we have here in America. 45.5% of the people think that their handouts are going to get cut. Okay? Our nation has a 38.1% tax on corporate earnings, the fourth highest in the world. The House of Representatives has proposed that it be cut to 20%. Some members of Congress call for a 15% rate. The nation's political hustlers object, saying corporations should pay their fair share of taxes. The fact of the matter is, which even leftist economists understand, though they might not publicly admit it, is corporations do not pay taxes. I've been saying that for years on this program, folks. An important subject area in economics is called tax in, um, indecence. It holds that the entity upon whom a tax is levied does not necessarily bear its full burden. Some of it can be shifted to another party. If a tax is levied on a corporation, it will have one of four responses or some combination thereof. It will raise the price of its product, lower dividends, cut salaries, or lay off workers. In each case, a flesh and blood person bears the tax burden. The important point is that corporations are legal fictions and 
Such do not pay taxes. Corporations are merely tax collectors for the government. Politicians love to trick people by suggesting that they will impose taxes, not on them, but on some other entity instead. We can personalize the trick by talking about property taxes. Imagine that you are a homeowner and a politician tells you he is not going to tax you. Instead, he's going to tax the property, property and land. You would easily see the political chicanery. Land and property can, cannot and do not pay taxes. Again, only people pay taxes. The same principle applies to corporations. There's another side of the taxes that goes completely unappreciated. According to a 2013 study by the Virginia-based uh, Mercatus Center, Americans spend up to $378 billion annually in tax-relating accounting costs. And in 2011, Americans spent more than 6 billion hours complying with the tax code. These hours are equivalent to the annual hours of a workforce of 3.4 million people, or the number of people employed by four of the largest U.S. corporations, Walmart, IBM, McDonald's, and Target combined. Along with tax cuts, tax simplification should be on the agenda. So what Walter's saying here, this is something that I've been talking about for years, on this program that corporations pass the tax on to the customers. So they don't pay taxes. They're just, as Walter said, they're tax collectors. Now, if they pass that cost on to the consumer, follow me here, and this is where Robert B. Reich and Indivisible Guide falls down on this argument and they don't have a good answer for this. If you take the corporate tax rate from 39% down to 15%, that means that the corporation is only going to have to pass through 15%, either in cutting dividends, cutting jobs, salaries, or laying people off. So they only have the 15% to deal with. What kind of a boost? You're almost like 39%. That's very close to three times. That's over three times, excuse me. It's Almost three, you know, 15, 30, 45. Okay, I got my math straight here. It's almost three times more. So what happens if you take two-thirds of the corporate taxes that, that corporations are forced to collect, they're just a pass-through, and they don't pass that on to consumers? See, this is the big lie that they don't tell you about. They don't, if they're only passing 15% instead of 39%, you're saving almost two-thirds. Do you think that will be a boost in the economy where folks can actually, their, their dollar goes further? Because I'm telling you what, through competition out there, if a corporation doesn't want to pass that savings on to the consumers, there's going to be some corporations out there that are saying, you know what, we'll do it. We'll pass the savings on. If they pass the savings on, then they might get a bigger market share of whatever, whatever they're selling. And if they do that, then in direct competition with another one, it'll either, either they'll keep up with their practices and go out of business, or they'll match what the other corporation is so they don't lose too much of the market share. It's economics 101. But the anti-freedom folks out there like Robert B. Reich, an indivisible guy, they, they don't want you to know that. They don't want you to know that at all. They want you to see that all these greedy corporations are going to keep all this money. I've had shows on this about this. They want to keep this money. They want to give it to themselves as far as salaries. They don't want to hire other folks. And that's just not the case. Competition makes corporations and companies and everything, me included, 
forces us to do things to make our product better so people actually buy into it. So I, I just wanted to share that with you because, again, uh, it, it, it is, is amazing to me. It is amazing to me how many folks do not want to cover this. Now, uh, big old controversy in the, in the uh, news today with uh, Donald Trump called a gold star mother and gave us condolences. And it wasn't what a Democratic congresswoman wanted to hear. Flor and this is a story by uh, Lucas uh, Michelonius, or Michelonius from Fox News posted on the 18th of October this year. The Florida Democrat who criticized President Trump this week for being insensitive toward the widow of U.S. soldiers slain in Africa might be facing similar criticism herself. It turns out that U.S. Rep Representative uh, Frederica Wilson has frequently voted against measures intended to help veterans and their families, according to VoteSmart.org, a vote-tracking site whose founding board members include former President Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. The measures that Wilson opposed included a bill that would, give, uh, that would have ensured that families of four soldiers slain in Afghanistan in 2013 received death and burial benefits. In fact, Wilson's voting record on veterans' issues may call into question the sincerity of her recent defense of U.S. service members and their families. Despite Wilson's claim to be committed to honoring our service members, not only with words, but with deeds, she has voted against most bills ensuring continuing funding for veterans' benefits, including payments to widows of fallen soldiers, the vote tracking site shows. She also opposed measures designed to improve the Department of Veterans Affairs. In March 2013, Wilson opposed the Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act, which prevented a government shutdown and provided funds for the U.S. military and the VA. The bill, which passed with bipartisan support and was signed into law by the Obama administration, provided funding to the military and the VA until the next government shutdown, uh, slowdown, or showdown, excuse me. Later in the year, Wilson again voted against a resolution aimed at ensuring benefits paid to the veterans and their families would not be affected by the government shutdown in October of that year. The motion was uh, particularly important in the wake of reports that family, the families of, of four soldiers slain in Afghanistan in 2013 have been deprived of benefits due to the shutdown in Washington. The families of slain shoulders were, soldiers were denied burial benefits up to $100,000 to each family, among other benefits. New York Times reported, Wilson voted against the resolution ensuring that the benefits reached the families. Defense Department spokesman Carl Woog said the department did not have the authority to pay death uh, gratuities and other key benefits for the survivors of service members killed in action due to the government shutdown. The congresswoman also posed numerous bills aimed at improving VA services provided to veterans or the veterans and their families. Wilson's office has not responded to the Fox News request for comment. Folks, political theater at its best. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen a picture of rep representative, and I'll, I'll get one up here for you real quick, because she is one of the funniest looking women I've ever seen uh, to actually grace Capitol Hill. And you'll be, uh, <laughs> let me just go over here now, folks. 
She must have, I don't know how many cowboy hats she has or how many hats in general she has, but this woman has a lot of hats. And uh, she, in my opinion, she doesn't really wear the cowboy hat that well. And it's amazing to me. Like I said, she looks more honestly, and I know I'm getting in trouble for this, but she looks more like a clown than anything else. I'm just showing you some pictures here. Uh, that yellow one. Like, again, uh, she looks more like a clown than she does anything else. And she, her voting record shows that she is totally, totally against, totally against veterans and the military in her voting record, mainly the veterans. In her voting record, shows this, proves this. And she has the audacity to come out and stand with these mother, with this uh, Gold Star mother and accuse President Trump of being insensitive. And if you go out and read that, and I, I, I had it and I can't find it now, uh, the actual, what he said, I didn't find any fault with it. She's using this as political theater. Again, as uh, Professor Buckley said, people hate Trump so much, it doesn't matter what. They're, they're going to do things that are going to condemn him or try to condemn him uh, and try to kick him out of office. We talked a little bit about the impeachment. There's nothing to impeach him on. You know, um, if that if the 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 uh, Mr. Green, the Representative Green, was bringing forth these articles of impeachment, and if we applied the same logic and common sense to the impeachment articles that he's trying to bring forth to his actual activities, plus more so on Democrats and Republicans in there because of bad decisions and and all that kind of stuff, we we should be impeaching half of Congress. Because in the Constitution, we don't read that's high crimes and misdemeanors. And President Trump hasn't committed any. Hasn't committed any of those. So this, to me, again, <laughs> uh, Representative Wilson, she is just off her rocker. She totally is. <laughs> it's all political theater. Honestly, quite frankly, I, I don't remember seeing this woman in the news before. Maybe she has and I just missed it. She didn't come into my sphere of influence, as it were. And uh, honestly, I think some of these politicians that aren't in the limelight, they do outrageous things like this to get in uh, the limelight. All right, the other day, and I know I'm over on, I'm only doing, um, you won't be able to hear me live on Blog Talk Radio, but it is recording. I did want to just get into this real quick. Um, let me see if I have it up over here. I, I don't. Uh, no, I don't. Let me get this up over here real quick. It's a, a intersectionalism, intersexual feminism for beginners. <laughs> now, we're not going to go over the whole thing. I am just going to point out some of the highlights for you uh, on this because, to me, uh, this is funny that, that, that these people actually believe this stuff. You know, <laughs> do you believe the words that are coming out of your typewriter? Uh, okay. <laughs> now, intersexual feminism for beginners. Frequently asked questions. The, this frequently asked questions, the following questions. What is feminism? What are some of the different types of feminism? What's the difference between black feminism and womanism? What does intersexuality mean? 
why is intersectionality important in feminism? How can I make my feminism more intersectional? Should I call myself an intersexual feminist? I'm not a black woman, black non-binary person. Why do you say I can't call myself an intersexual feminist? What about non-black women of color? You say I'm not allowed to call myself an intersexual feminist because I'm not a black woman, a black non-binary person, but I do face multiple oppressions. But I do want my feminism to be inclusive. Am I not supposed to be intersectional? Is intersectionality for everyone? Just the reading of the questions there hopefully should put red flags up all over the place for any reasonable, common sense, logical person that's looking at an issue like intersectionality or intersectional feminism. Now, as defined by this and this website here, folks, Intersectional Web Feminism 101, Tumblr.com, um, they, I was looking on here and I was trying to find out... Um, they, they're basically a breakdown of third-wave feminism concepts for the, uh, for the genuinely curious and the uh, terribly ignorant. I must, be terribly, I must be one of the terribly ignorant ones. However, I, I have yet to find out who actually wrote this. And so I'm, I'm still looking on this. This is one of these things that they put these out, and yet they don't take credit for it. There's no name or person attached to this. Uh, incredible. Anyway, what is feminism? Feminism is a broad collection of movements that recognize that women are oppressed, which means they are granted less power, social capital, material goods, and or freedoms than men. Feminism is a response to this oppression that aims to provide women with liberation and equality. There are many, many different feminisms which have different theories about the causes and solutions of the aforementioned disparity. Now, as we go through this, listen to these. I'm not going to read them all because that will take me too long, and I want to wrap up the show uh, sometime before 2 o'clock. What are some of the different types of men, uh, feminism? Here are some of the many types of feminism. Each type in itself is a broad movement, so there can be big difference, differences between feminism even when they consider themselves the same type of feminist. Some feminists... Don't use any of the uh, labels below, and uh, some use multiple. You have liberal feminism. You have radical feminism. You have different difference feminism and equality feminism. You have religious feminism. You have lesbian feminism. You have black feminism. You have white feminism. You have womanism. Then it goes on to explain what's the difference between black feminism and womanism. Um, do, I... Do identify as a womanist in addition to a feminist. Why do both? Because I like to emphasize the difference between the two. I see womanism as a softer, more personal form of feminism. Uh, some notes I wrote uh, ago, and there's a, a mod T up there, and I'm still trying to find out who wrote these, uh, about the difference between womanism and feminism, specifically black feminism, through intersectional feminism can uh, work in its place. So they go on down trying to explain all this, and, I, and I'll have the link up in the show notes page again today. Uh, what does intersectionality mean? The term intersectionality was coined by critical race theorist uh, Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 through the actual concept of, uh, was around since 1851. See, Ain't I a Woman by Sojourner Truth. It is a feminist sociological theory theory 
that centers around analyzing and discussing how oppression often intersects, creating unique and varied experiences of discrimination. Now, let me stop the reading there. They call it a sociological theory. Where have we heard the term theory used before? Ah, yes. The theory of evolution. Now, as in feminism or intersexual fem feminism, and this is bared out by some of the conversations I've had in comment sections under videos, that most of the people that support this think this is settled science. And it's not a theory. And since it's settled, if you don't agree with it, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have the facts. When I can find more, more actual facts that, that oppose and denounce this idea of intersexuality. Now, goes on to say, originally intersectionality referred to the discrimination faced by black women that is not only sexism and racism, but an experience that is more than the sum of its parts, now referred to as uh, misogynoir in black feminist and womanist circles. Intersectionality has since been expanded to include the analysis of discrimination faced by anyone who identifies with the multiple social, biological, and cultural groups that are not favored in a patriarchal, capitalistic, white supremacy society. See, now they, they come from this idea that one, we're a patriarchal society and we are not anymore, haven't been. Two, they denounce capitalism because of glass ceilings, the the so-called uh, debunked wage gap, uh, all these type of things, and a white supremacist society, and we're not. We're none of these things, but in their theory, they theorize that there is, so because there is, then there's all these oppressions that are going on. See how everything is interconnected here? <laughs> and it goes on, it talks about why is intersectionality important to feminism? Because they have to divide and conquer, folks. That's why. Now, I'll tell you something different here, but it's basically to divide and conquer. How can I make my feminism more intersectional? Well, how can you make your feminism more intersectional? As you go to a chart like this and see all the groups you fit. And divide yourself up that way and become a part of groups that you actually fit. But be careful. You're going to have people in those groups, folks, that actually look at you and say that you're not educated enough, or you're not ethnic enough, or you're not uh, black enough, or Asian enough, or woman enough, or man enough, or you're too old, you're too young, you're the wrong sex, you're the wrong gender, you have the wrong heritage, you speak the wrong language, you have the wrong religion. You're going to run into all these groups because intersectionality, folks, is about dividing. It's about dividing people up into these groups and making you feel bad about your part of these groups, that you're being oppressed by this white, supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic society. Do you see the problem in it? Do you see the problem in that? And I get taken to task when I tell, especially feminists, that I treat everybody as an American. If you're an American citizen, I will treat you as an American. If you're not an American citizen living in this country, guess what I'm going to do? I'm still going to treat you as an American citizen. I'm going to treat you how I want to be treated. I'm going to let justice flow like a river from me. I'm going to make sure that you have the opportunities that I have. I told you a story of uh, a, 
I won't say a dear friend, but he was somewhat of a mentor when I was in high school and, and, and starting out in the restaurant business as a, as a dishwasher, uh, a busboy, then worked up uh, eventually before I quit and went in the military full-time in the Navy. I was head cook of the line on my shift, Krishan Gupta. He wasn't American. He wasn't uh, a green card immigrant that came here legally, and he taught me a lot of things about that. But the one thing that he wanted to be, he was working towards was becoming American and being, being known as an American. He didn't want to be known as an Indian American. He wanted to be known as an, as an American, just like I do. I'm the fourth generation removed from immigrants. Okay? And my great-grandpa McCarville was an immigrant, so my grandma, actually I'm third. My children are fourth. I misspoke. My grandma, my mom, and then me. That's, that's three generations that were born on American soil. I consider myself a native-born American. Well, I can't use that. That's, that's cultural appropriation. Oh, well, you know what? I don't care about your cultural appropriation. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's another buzzword to divide us. Oh, you're taking that culture. You're taking parts of that culture and appropriating it or misappropriating it. You know what? Go find a short pier and take a long walk off it and cool down a little bit. Because again, I, cultural appropriation is one of those terms that they want to use to divide us with. And as far as I can see, that's exactly what intersectional feminism does. Now, I'm trying to get some folks to come on the show and talk to me about this. Hopefully, I have my... I still got to work on my soundboard here to see if I can change this with the, uh, the Skype. And it could be an internet thing on my end. I got too much going to the internet at the same time while I'm doing these interviews. Uh, so maybe in the future, what I might try to do and what I think I'm, is going to be best for me to do is actually do the interviews and then put them on the show. I'm going to try to do that in the future and see how that works. So Because I did this with my mom, not broadcasting out with the streaming computer, and it worked fine. But we could have issues. But anyway... I want to bring some feminists on here who believe in uh, intersectionalism. I'll let them explain it to me, what intersectionalism is. I'm, I'm curious. But, but on the same token, if something doesn't sound right with what they're doing, what they're talking about, I'm going to, to question them on that also. And I doubt I'm going to get, I don't know, I say I doubt I'm going to get the feminists on here to talk to me about it because of my views. And because, uh, you know, they think that I'm part of this, this uh, cabal of these uh, white supremacist, supremacist, capitalist, privileged white men. Now, they can think that all they want, but the problem is, and the problem, and this is the biggest problem, and this is the, the argument that I was putting forth in some of these comment sections, is this is groupthink. Intersectionalism wants to group all these people into groups and then figure out a group solution to apply to the group. But the problem with that is that solution may not be able to be applied to everybody in that group because maybe they have some other different type of intersectionality. They intersect with another group in their intersectional feminism, and therefore that solution for that group may not benefit them because of another group they actually belong to in your dividing of people and that's why i had a i had a, a person i don't know if a man or a woman i said well what what are your solutions we just don't recognize it and i said no i don't i don't not recognize things but 
problems have to be fixed on the individual level. And if we fix them on the individual level, the, the culture and society takes care of themselves. You cannot make top-down solutions. Obamacare is a perfect example of this. You cannot make a top-down solution that's going to benefit everybody. And that's why, that's why the Founding Fathers and the Framers put in the Constitution uh, the General Welfare Clause. It's not that we have to, have to have welfare for folks. That's a modern term. That means that laws that are passed on the federal level that are within the enumerated powers, Article 1, Section 8, have to be for the general welfare of all. They have to benefit everybody. If they don't, it's not a good law. And that should be the overriding factor in passing laws. Does this law benefit everybody? No. Well, then we shouldn't be passing it. People should be taking care of that on themselves, or maybe at the local level or state level should be taking care of it, but not, definitely not the federal level. EPA is a, another perfect example. They're trying to do a top-down approach to protecting the environment, and they're do, they, they've done a lousy job in the past. As a matter of fact, it's a redundancy because I did a check back in 2009 or 10. I think it was 2009. I found, I finally found at the time, I only had like 46 or 47, I finally found all 50 states plus the territories in the United States have at the state level a, de a Department of Environmental Protection. They call it different things, but it, it's essentially that, the Department of Environmental Protection. And so again, top-down solutions do not work for every situation because the environment up here in Pennsylvania is way different than Arizona. Or, or Southern California, or New Mexico, and vice versa. Well, the environment up in Alaska is way different from the environment here. There are some similarities, but there are also some uniqueness that's only unique to Alaska, or unique to Hawaii, or unique to Texas, or unique to Florida. When we start dividing, especially at the federal level, and, and start dividing things up that way, like we were supposed to, we were supposed to have a federal system where the states were supposed to be taking care of these, we wouldn't have near the problems we have in the country. We wouldn't have near the blowhards out there that are blowing all these problems up and want the federal government to be the solution and the end all to everything. We wouldn't have this if we followed the Constitution and the ideas of federalism. We would not have this. So please go do your own research on intersectional feminism and, and let me know if I'm wrong. You know, let me know if I'm wrong. I'm going to close off the show here. It's about 10 minutes to the hour. Uh, we've done almost two hours worth of program here. I just want to, again, I want to thank Professor Buckley for coming on the show. I apologize for the, um, I believe it was probably on my end uh, with everything I have going out of the office here. Uh, I'm going to have to just do these interviews without, <clears throat> without streaming and put them on. And that, I think that's what I'll have to do for the near future here. But I want to thank him for his time and his comments on the program. I want to thank everybody for suffering through everything with me on the program here and actually um, just allowing me to say what I want to say. I have on my blog talk radio, my YouTube, my audience is growing, my views are growing, and hopefully after this interview with uh, Professor Buckley, maybe I'll get a little bit of a bump. I'm not, I didn't do it because I wanted to bump. I did it because I genuinely cared about the article that he actually said. It's been the Dan Clemens Show. I'm your host, Dan Clemens, your constitutional warrior. And remember, if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. Have a great rest of the day, folks, and God bless. And remember on Sunday, please attend the Church of God's Choice, not your choice. And, and Lord will we'll see you Monday at noon.
Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.